listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers are gay. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi, welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth, and my name is John Teague. Welcome, wherever you are, whoever you are. So today I'm talking with Jeff Rowley. Jeff Rowley is a, uh, well, he's a family man. He's a businessman. He has a master's. He got his master's. I mean, that's no small feat. I don't know. For anyone who has their master's, I'm sure that they would subscribe that it's a feat. And for anyone who doesn't have it, like myself... It just sounds like a massive thing. The Masters. He's got a Masters in business. And he's also a very, very accomplished big wave surfer. He surfed all around the world and, um, and, and has been in the ocean. Do I have my radio voice on? I think I'm doing a fucking radio voice. Uh, hi. Hi. I think I just called myself out. I'm doing a voice. Let's drop it down a gear. He was in the ocean when the biggest wave surfed, paddled into, recorded, has, has been recorded. I mean, that is unbelievable. If you think about that, the biggest wave ever ridden, paddled into on your own steam, not pulled into by a machine, a sled, uh, uh, a ski, uh, he, he, he paddled, he was out there. And um, I mean... Which is actually unbelievable. If you think about being in the ocean when it's at its absolute maximum and the biggest way, it's like that's that's life and death and that's, uh, I don't know, that just boggles my brain. But, you know, um, so a friend of mine this morning posted on Instagram a thing, a little bit of writing, which made me feel better about being, sometimes I can beat myself up about being, you know, I feel very blessed that I'm a surfer and I get to go surfing a lot. Um, and, but sometimes I'm like, I'm wasting my life. Am I wasting my life paddling around the ocean? (laughs) Like it's my job, like it's my job, still going for the tour. Um, but then my mate, Swizzy, he, he posted this this morning and I read it to you and it's a quote. It's a quote. And I'll tell you it's from by the end, but it's surfers are the throw aheads of mankind, not the dregs. They aren't the black sheep of humanity, but the futurists. They are leading the way to where man ultimately wants to be. The act of the ride is the epitome of be here now. And the tube ride is the most acute form of that. Which is your future? Oh, 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 which is your future is right ahead of you. The past is exploding behind you. Your wake is disappearing. Your footprints are washed from the sand. It's a non-productive, non-depletive act that's done purely for the value of the dance itself, and that is the destiny of man. Quoted from Timothy Leary. Now. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty profound coming from Timothy Leary. I don't know him personally, but I don't know if you've seen Animal Kingdom recently, but um, he he plays a heroin addict on it. And, I mean, I know he's a smart, funny motherfucker, but that's pretty profound. And uh, I can hang my hat on that one for a day. Just think, yep, all right, I'm part of the throwheads. Um, you know, whatever. Whatever gets you through. 
That's what got you me through this, this morning. Interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. This sort of stuff I learned through more hands-on with the business. So the masters gave me the ability to just look a bit clearer at things. So I learned stuff. And it more helped me personally than actually in the business itself. It helped me personally to go, hang on, what am I doing with my life at the moment? Why am I doing what am I doing? You know, what, what was I doing in my old career when I didn't really even want to be there? Um, what was the reasons for it? You know, whose battles am I actually fighting and, and what do I actually want to do? And so when I worked out what I wanted to do... But that comes like, that's a little bit of maturity. Mm-hmm. And we all do shit when we're younger, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's part of being young. We do fuck, fuck, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm just going to drag us back. Yeah, cool. Um, so you grew up, born and bred down here in Torquay. Well, I was actually born and bred down in Anglesey. Oh, 20 minutes down the road, fucking hell. Yeah, just down, yeah, yeah sorry. So there's the next town down. Yeah. Um, lived at a place called Point Road Night. My parents owned a surf shop, and my dad was a shaper of surfboards, spring of surfboards. Oh, I didn't know that. Didn't you? No. There you go. I knew your dad was an old surfer. I didn't yeah. know that he was a shaper as well. Yep. That's cool. Yeah, so he shaped boards, um, and they had a they had their business, and we so we grew up around that. They had the shaping bay underneath our house. Um, and I always used to go up, you know, playing in the foam dust on the floor and watch my dad shape boards and all the surfboard blanks and big containers of resin were stored under the house. It was probably like <laughs> so dangerous and illegal these days, but pretty funny. Um, so, and then you would have been, you would have learned to surf at Point Road Night. Yeah. Perfect little wave. Yeah, I did. That was, that was the place. It was just, it was just down the road. And so uh, what, um, <clears throat> you don't have to divulge, but was in this in the eighties, nineties? Um, eighties. Eighties. Around that time, and we into skating as well. I always ask this because skating was such a big part of my life. Uh, yeah, it was huge. Yeah, and skating was a huge part of my life all the way until I was about eighteen when um, when some other some older people told me to stop doing it if I liked surfing so much because you get injured too much. And unfortunately, I actually listened to them. But the thing is, I love skating so much, and now with my kids, my kids are getting into skating, and so I'm slowly getting back into skating as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, after twenty years, I've been. You know, back on the ramps, just near our house, and the skate park, and in the little on little quarter pipes and stuff. You know, just how fun feeling it's out so here. good. Yeah, you know, yep. I just had um, as a little bit of a throwback. I had Miles's kid Tanner um, spray Vision Psycho Stick on my latest, my new five ten. Nice. The same. De- remember that decal? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's really cool. Um, so Point Road Night and foam dust under the house and chemicals. And so you were going to school. Was it? I, I know you, you, you're quite accomplished in your career as a surfer. Was it always in your mind as a young whippersnapper that this is the life that you want to live, or did you think that there was something else? Now, all I ever wanted to do was surf. Since as young as I can remember. Um, my parents had the shop. There was beautiful surfboards in the shop. There was wetsuits. There was all about. It was all about surfing. My dad was always going surfing. He was always going down the coast, um, and and disappearing for a day or two days in a row, stuff like that. Um, and we always wanted to go surfing. And it was different then. Your parents didn't help you and push you into it as much as parents do today. They weren't. People just weren't as conscious as this kind of whole thing that everyone is now. Yeah. And everyone wants to make their kid the next pro these days. Yeah, oh my God. Whereas I grew up just just saturated in it, just and that's just all I knew. It was all surfing, skateboarding, you know, people coming to the house to buy surfboards and fluoro um, colours. 
Yeah, and then when skateboards sort of kind of came out or whatever and became a part of the surf culture, they came into us. We had skateboards in the shop as well, and we were just like, whoa, skateboards, and they had crazy pictures on them, and we just wanted everything to do with it. You know, we were just kids. Yeah. And we just loved it. Um, and then, yeah, so from a super young age, Dad let us. Dad brought home some secondhand boards for us. Like I was probably like five or six or something like that. I think for my somewhere around my seven or eighth birthday i got my first ever um custom board made by dad it was yellow it was amazing brand new surfboard how big so i think it was a five five or maybe a five seven perfect tiny little board yeah and so i used to take that down to point road night and and go surfing and did you go um did you go surf grinders grinders was like the way the coastline curves around at point road night is a, is a big point and um and then it and so the smallest waves are in the corner and as you go around the beach further and further and further it gets bigger so of course grinders what you're talking about is like the furthest away that's the most adult wave so i never graduated to grinders we graduated slowly slowly along you've got um you had point road night then you had i think there was um steps then you had uh soapy rocks was the next one and then there was yeah soapy rocks it's a little point down from road night and then that was like a big wave to me when i was a little kid yeah then there was middles at anglesey and then there was um anglesey main beach jetties a few others yeah is it right off the river mouth yeah jetties is right off the off that little river mouth right there that little crosswaves out there you know inside the reef i've never surfed it but i've heard it gets quite good yeah it probably does on its on its day yeah. and then grind it so i didn't really graduate because we left anglesey when i was like 12 so for the for the badlands of torquay no so when i was 12 um so my parents had the um the surf shop and then they had two factories in geelong as well they're doing they're in a clothing business as well they expanded into clothing production um, and they had a couple of other other brands that they were doing selling clothing and you know selling it wholesale out to shops and but my parents got caught up in pyramid building society and in whatever that was 1990 or 91 or something like that and uh lost everything fuck me yeah so we lost everything we lost the house the cars um that was uh cleaned us out uh, stop me there for a second that was a it wasn't a bank but it was a bank scheme or it was it was a building society so um it was yeah it was not a bank and so it was it was a building society there's still building societies around today they're just you know it's just people go to these places um they're not as secure as the banks but they can offer better better returns or you know more lax lax terms stuff like that i think is bendigo a building society bendigo's bendigo bank Bank, bank. so he's a bank but there's others i can't think of anything off the top of my head but basically, yeah, the smaller you go, the more risk there is. But they were a Geelong-based business, and um, the Victorian Premier, what is his name, John Kane at the time, apparently, sent out a, a letter to people in Victoria guaranteeing that Premier Building Society was solid, because apparently in the financial services industry there was rumours that they were having that they were not solid. So he sent this out, um, and then basically what happened was was he um, on the take? basically something like that and um then on the on the friday afternoon they closed their doors and the monday morning they didn't open the doors again and so everyone's everyone's money was gone everyone with home loans and business loans and all this everything was just called in yeah so it was pretty heavy my parents lost we lost absolutely everything and that sort of you know that was a huge um that was a major impact on on my parents life on on us but we were kids so it was kind of like all we knew was our parents were stressed and all we knew that was that you know we we're moving house you know the house was going we had nothing the business was gone the shops are gone all this is you know where we've got you know 
everything's gone. Um, oh man, what a thing to live through! What a fuck. Mm, yeah, but I mean, and so how did your parents rebound? What they did was um, they took us around Australia for a year, so we had nothing, and so we had a four wheel drive that was in um, it was in my grandpa's name, and there was a caravan that was in a friend's name. And that's because my parents were bankrupt, weren't allowed to have anything. And um, yeah, they um, they just we packed up our worldly belongings and we just went around Australia for you. We were gypsies, didn't have a home, so we went around Australia and we. As kids, that must have been fucking awesome. It was the best year of my childhood, and so they turned this negative into an absolute positive. It was absolutely amazing. So we did homeschool for a year, um, or distance education, and whatever you want to call it these days. Um, distance education, actually, not homeschool. Um, we did that. We traveled around the caravan. We had a tent. We had an annex, fishing rods, surfing. We had a, uh, a tin boat on the roof of the full drive. We had Nissan Patrol. Um, and Albie Mangle style. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. We went and spent time, you know, we spent you know, months in South Australia. We went all the way around the bottom. Did you surf? Um, you surfed obviously all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. We surfed all the way around, just pulled up at all these different spots. And, um, Seen just, sharks in just, South Australia? We saw sharks in, I didn't see any in South Australia, and we spent a lot of time at Cactus, um, about a month, I think. It was a lot of time for us. And That's a lot of time. Yeah. We did a lot of fishing there off the cliffs. So we were little kids. I was like um, 12. My brother was 10. My sister was 14. And we were fishing off the cliffs there, catching salmon for dinner. And, um, you know, we learned how to fish, learned how to tie knots and cast and be safe on cliffs and all this kind of stuff that, you know, we got so much world experience that was just amazing. Um, we saw sharks at Esperance and Albany in WA because you've got the um, where you go surfing there is there's big um, big sandy dune cliff things about you know quite high 100 feet high or something like that that go right down to the beach and then the water there's little rocks and um, the surf's all got these it's like little salmon holes there's these little channels in the sandbanks there and so when you're up on top the water's crystal clear and you can see guys surfing the water and then you're like boom here's two sharks coming along towards these two surfers and people will be up the top waving t-shirts and yelling at them so the guys would catch a wave and sort of come in so we knew about that sort of thing with sharks like we just experienced it firsthand like you know when I was 12 that's nearly 30 years ago that place is crazy did you see, um, you know, there's that Instagram SA Rips or something? Yeah. That photographer? Yeah. Have you seen his posts the last couple of days? No. Uh, a mate had sent them through to me, and he's obviously in the water, and like literally 12 feet away is the fin, just from the water perspective, and it goes spooky swim. And then he sent another one, put in another one today, uh, and there's surfers going over the crest of the wave between the crest him is the another one with the fin and it's circling him no way yeah the, south australia is a, a pretty wild place it's a, it's yeah it's, it's one of those places that makes you think think about it you know think that's that's the main reason it's going to keep the crowds down the surf there is just that thing. and so when you were there and it's still i know it's still pretty wild i know the locals are pretty heavy with uh shotguns and um, all sorts of stuff like that did you experience any of that Nah, not at all, mate. <laughs> not at all. It was just we were just camping. Everyone, yeah, it was camping. We were a family, and we yeah. just we were just camping out, and everyone was really good. Yeah. We had a great time there. There was um, people doing, you know, barbecues and people having drinks around the barbie and cooking fish, and they caught that day and talking about surfing, and yeah, it was really good. So what a oh, your parents. That's amazing. It's such a good spin mm. on such a terrible 
Ding. Yeah, right. we we ended up so we, we spent most of our time in WA up north. So we towed a caravan, everything in up to um, up to Nalu, and we were the take the first person to take a caravan up there. And we spent six months there. We spent the entire season up there and made that our home base because my dad obviously loved it. He'd been there before. Um, we spent the yeah the whole season there, and that was amazing because there is little spots that kids can surf there. A few at home and um, close to close to the camp. Yeah. Um, and the the things that you see there are just incredible. Like watching and learning, you know, when you're 12, learning that um, seeing sharks jump out of the water eight feet in the air and land with a huge belly whacker because it's part of their digestive system to help them digest what they've eaten. That's what they do. Yeah, that's what they do. So we knew that when we were 12, you know. And then going to the bluff because there's bait fish and the bait fish are right next to the next to the shore, next to the sand, and see so watching schools of six to eight foot sharks beach themselves up with a wave, up dry in the sand, snapping at the bait fish, the bait fish jumping on the beach to try and get away, and then the sharks rolling down back down the beach back into the water. And so then you've got these guys that are waiting, picking the right shark. When a shark watches up, they run down, they gaff it, hook it, and drag it up the beach because they want to eat the shark for dinner. And just, just seeing like oh my God. crazy stuff like that when you're 12 years of age and my brother was 10. What and, sort of sharks? I don't know what they were back then. Was there whites I'm not sure. There? I'm not sure. I don't think there's whites. I think there's more like... No, there probably is. I think they there's more tigers. There's a lot of like reef sharks, black tips and all that sort of stuff. Um, when we were kids, yeah, we saw them in the surf. We'd be surfing little little waves inside the reef at Nalu. There's a tiny little wave there, about one foot, a little white water thing. We'd be surfing that and you'd see like a, a reef shark would go past, stuff like that. You know, it was pretty cool. What an experience. I was saying mm. to a mate last night how... We were talking about surf trips and I was saying I just would love to go to the northwest never been up there it's amazing it's it's like another planet but from here it's just so hard to get to it's so far like it'll cost you more money to go up there than it does to go to indo yeah you know what i mean because you gotta fly to perth what are you gonna do hire a hire a car yeah which or is drive a, and then you look at the fuel i was looking at the distance yeah there, and it's just like that is a lot of diesel yeah it's a lot of, it's a it's a serious trip and that's why if you're gonna do it you, you want to have a good i think you want to have a decent amount of time up your sleeve yeah yeah. So you went, did you go the whole circumference around? Yep. At the end of the surf season, we just kept going north. And um, we went, we actually went back into Carnarvon, and my dad loved yachts. And so he went down to the boat harbour there and um, saw a guy with a giant, or with a, with a, I think it was a 60 foot, maybe it was 50 foot or 60 foot, I think it was a 60 foot sailing boat. He was sailing it up. He had no idea how to sail. And he needed, dad started talking to him and he needed um, someone to help him sail it up the coast. And so dad, um, dad volunteered and he said hey how about we take the whole family on board too so our whole family jumped on this yacht there left our car in Carnarvon and sailed it um, for a week up the coast up to Karnanara I think it is where the mining area is so we sailed up went past all the Montebello Islands all this stuff so we went on a full a yacht trip for a week fishing off the yacht and just sailing and that was that was you know amazing in itself Oh my um, god! So what an adventure! And then how did you get back down to the car? So then, yeah, I remember this. It was pretty funny. Um, god, I haven't talked about this in so long. Um, the car was whatever it was five hundred kilometers south. So Dad and I hitchhiked. So the family checked into a motel up in, um, yeah, I think it was Kananara, and um, we hitchhiked back down. Right, and it was forty-five degrees, and we got a ride with some guy that was working on it for a mining place or whatever and he drove us halfway 
and there was a um, there was a petrol station on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, like full Wolf Creek stuff, red dirt, red earth, blue sky, eagles soaring, not a cloud in the sky, and forty five degrees. He drops us and he turns turns left and goes inland, and we're going and we're halfway and. We waited on the side of the road in 45-degree heat for the entire day, right, for another car to come, and not one more car came for the whole day. Oh, my God. It was so roasted. How old are you? And I was 12. Yeah. And so at, um, I think it was like 8 o'clock at night, my dad said, look, we're not getting a car. He went into that little petrol station, and they had, fortunately I had a phone. He borrowed the phone, called the motel, and my mama had to hire a car from the town um, and drive pick us up and drive us back to all the way back to our car <laughs> so that he just completely failed oh, uh, it, was, it was a good experience though so that just shows like, how remote you were there was not another car for yep, not another car came through yeah it was crazy super red earth blue sky just like one of those Mars type pictures that you get in the, in the outback in Australia it's so do amazing. you get uh, a bit nostalgic listening to Midnight Oil Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I, I spent a bit of time in the West in 95, and every time I listen to the oils, it takes me back. For some reason, it just reminds me of, I get Western Australia. Yeah. Well, my parents were um, huge Cure fans and Pink Floyd fans. Oh, uh, yeah. And so they used to play that a lot there. And, you know, like in the evening after a day of surfing, when the sun was setting and we're cooking a barbecue, they'd be playing like, you know, Pink Floyd or the Cure or something like that. And so whenever I hear that music now... Oh, that great that tasting takes me music. back. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, around the top, did you yep. spend much time around the top of the North Northern Territory? I think like about, not too much time, like about six weeks or something all up. Um, went to a crocodile farm way up in the hottest, reddest, dusty, I think it's Port Headland maybe is a town. I think that's the one right up the top of WA. I could be wrong. I think and there's a, there's a crocodile farm sanctuary type place where you can go like a tourist thing but the whole town I just remember the whole town was red because it was a mining town and the, or the red earth maybe not mining just the red earth and um, the entire town is coated red all the houses everything is coated red from the red earth and the dust maybe it was mining or maybe it was just the red earth but the whole place was red I remember that um, we went over the, all the way over the top past Darwin we went um, fishing on the rivers up there and I caught barramundi, and which was amazing. It was like you know that was the thing that we wanted to do, and we saw crocodiles in the wild, which was really good. Um, Darwin over to didn't spend too much time. I went over to Cairns, uh, probably hung out there for a little bit. You know, went did some snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef and did some fun things like that. And then um, we were getting towards it was about it was probably just getting towards Christmas time then so then um, my parents were starting to think about their approaching school year and what they're going to do and they had a goal that they wanted to settle somewhere with us for the new school year and so we ended up we headed back down and we ended up at the Gold Coast at about um, somewhere around Christmas I think it was and we pulled into a caravan park at Talabudra at the back of Burley Heads and got really good surf and just hung out there for a couple of weeks and lucked out into um, a few really good weeks of surf and we really enjoyed it as kids and um, we decided to just, yeah, to just, you know, pull up there and, and that would be where we'd go to school and and just resettle. And? Yeah, so we ended up spending, um, live there for the next five years. Did you really? Yeah, so that's where, um, um, yeah, I went to high school at Miami High on the Gold Coast mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, lived, we lived there for five years. Um, so just serving Kira and Burley and 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from yeah twelve to seventeen, which was which was really good because um, there's a lot of good small waves up there. We surfed um, Burley Heads, um, all the beaches surrounding there, just after school, and then um, every weekend, my brother and I would be and, and my sister we would be getting up at like four in the morning and catching a bus um, from Burley down to go to D-Bar. And that would take about an hour or an hour and a half, I think, um, to get there. And you're saving up your whatever it was, your $3.70 or something like that for your bus fare each way. Um, and we'd go down there and if it was going to be small and we'd go surf D-Bar and we'd, you know, we'd be getting on the bus with drunks coming back from the nightclub and we had two little kids with our surfboard, you know, 12 and 10 or, and my sister, I think, 14. Um, he yeah, must be a similar age to Fanning. He's about, I think about, I think he's my brother's age. I think he's about two years younger than me. But we were all in, there was, a, the Gold Coast had a really pretty tight-knit, um, competitive surfing um, you know, community there. Yeah. Yeah. So there was like all those, all those guys that are the pros now that, um, you know, you're fanning Parco, all that sort of thing. They're a couple of years younger than me. Um, and they went to Palm Beach Corumban school, whereas I was at Miami. There were some other guys that were pretty good up at Merrimack. There was the whole little area. So the, the local, um, the board riders comps were super competitive. The scholastic surfing was really competitive. Um, it was, yeah, it was all super competitive. Sure. And you guys were getting on board with that? We got into it just because that was, I mean, we surfed and that's what everyone did. And yeah. it was just when you're at school, that's like everyone, you know, it's, it's probably like in other places, everyone wants to be on the footy team or there, everyone wanted to be on the school surfing team kind of thing. And whereas to me, it was like, you get to have a chance to go surfing during school hours, then, then yeah, I want to do it. <laughs> so I remember, right, um, when I was working at Ripco there for a bit, uh, there was a, a video, I think you and Chris charging Big Pipe. Mm. When was that? That was when I was 19 and Chris was 17. And so you guys had moved back down here from, or did you go from yep. there? So we were on the Gold Coast for high school, basically. I did years 8 to 12 up there. Yeah. And um, during that time... I did a lot of um, I did a lot of vacations back down here to Torquay, yep. and we had friends. Um, my dad was good friends with one of the local guys, Mick Spatiri, and so we used to come down and stay at his house. Um, we used to just drive down, and so for the two weeks of school holidays, um, my dad, my brother, and myself would we'd drive down here and, and hang out and surf. And I just loved the surf here because it was always small on the Gold Coast and crowded. And we'd come down here, and it would be cold, but the waves I just thought the waves were amazing, um, and it's kind of where my heart was. And, um, yeah, the more I saw of it, the more we kept coming back. Um, as I was getting a bit older, the more I really liked it and knew it was for me. So by the time um, by the time I finished high school, I already knew and I'd planned it my family that as soon as high school was over, I was um, getting on a plane and actually, yeah, I jumped on a plane and flew out of there. I literally flew out on the day I finished high school to Victoria, moved back here, and my family actually followed. They, they packed up the house and came back down to Torquay as well. So... But I knew I wanted to be here. There was, there was things that I saw, like um, one day we were, I was down here, I was probably like 16, and we pulled up um, at Gibson Steps to check the surf. And I remember I was a, I was a kid, and I think I had my um, my gun surfboard with me at the time, which I think was a 511. Uh, right. And a car pulled up next to us, and they had everything from 7-foot to 10-foot boards on the car, like eight boards stacked up, just all in sequence, you know, the longest on the bottom, shortest on top. 
and I'd never seen anything like it and I just stared at these boards and these guys and was just like what are these things <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like my mind was just being blown I'm like I'm like what I don't know these things exist you don't see them on the Gold Coast what are they for what are you doing here and why am I here and I've got a 511 I thought that was my gun yeah. and what what you know I was just like what is this and it was just completely foreign to me I had no idea at all um, but I was fascinated by it and I was like okay I've got to learn what you know what this what this is what this is what it's about I was you know just that was one of those things that burned in my mind yeah 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 the big thirst yeah and you weren't you weren't going to get that on the Gold Coast and um and so th- this must be you flew to Victoria and it can't have been too much longer that did you go to the first trip in Hawaii like so I moved back to Victoria when I was what was it about I think I was still 17 yes I finished school at 17 in Queensland I was younger than everyone else down here um I already had my license um and I, I went to went to Hawaii I think the next year yeah the next like the next Christmas the next wine season um I'd met these two guys um when we were in Indo that year so I went to Indo that yeah. year as well um met these two guys over there these Hawaiian guys and they sort of threw out this thing hey if you want to come to Hawaii come stay with us and where were you in and Indo at G-Land yeah great yeah um and yeah I'd spent you know 10 days in the camp there with a couple of friends did Chris go no, I was with um, Brooko, Tripper, Helmy, yeah. so Shane Helm, yeah. um, a bunch of these guys. Spent yeah, so spent ten days at G Land. It was pretty funny, and we were in this little hut on the beach, and these guys were um, staying in the next hut, and they were a bit older than us. They were like in their thirties at the time, but they said, "Yeah, if you come to Hawaii, um, give us a call, and we'll you know we'll hook you up." And so at the time, I didn't know what that meant or anything like that. Right. But, but we got their, I think we got their phone number or something, and um, basically. I started surfing big waves in that first year that I was here when I was about 18 um, and from there I just wanted I just knew that I wanted to go to Hawaii from there and see big waves and then I called up these guys in Hawaii and they were just like yeah come over we'll pick you up at the airport you're staying with us and I'm like okay no worries and um, the guys were actually like we didn't we didn't know but the guys were pretty gnarly and we're right in the middle of the whole scene and knew everyone you know over there on the scene and you know hawaii was pretty it was super heavy back in those days so is that the i haven't been to hawaii but is it the hui or the hui or? oh not those guys no, but, but i mean there's you know there's a there's a pretty tight community over there everyone from hawaii knows each other yeah, sort of thing and yeah. these guys had a house um a small or oh, this one guy um that we so tim had a house on the um on what's called kaiki which is um just this little sub street just right near log cabins which is right on that seven mile miracle as they call it you know and and right next door to him this this house was um one house back from the beach so 50 meters from the sand next door to him um was a guy that was a filmer and still is a filmer um and his name's jd and he's the guy that introduced me to brazilian jiu-jitsu and he's still so he's the one of the black belt instructors he's a sunset beast jiu-jitsu guy and so his house was right next door and these like little cottages like basically i'm talking like 15 feet house to house you know um and so he's the he's the main filmer guy there on the north shore for andy irons and Corey lopez and shay lopez and, and all that crew all that that o'neill crew and, and all that group so all those guys are hanging out next door so he's a hell waterman 
Yeah, yeah. Or is he shoot from land as well, or both? Oh, he does. He does both. So but he was machine. Yeah, yeah. But he's. Um, I think he was shooting mostly from land. But he was. Um, you know, he was the guy who was best friends with these guys. Yeah. And so that's the crew that was hanging out right next door. You know, so every so often he would be. Um, they used to call me Aussie Grom, and he'd be like just shout out from his house he'd be like Ozzy Grom we're gonna surf the pipeline get your 7.6 meet me in my car don't speak <laughs> just come so I'd get in the car and they'd go and pick up you know Braden Diaz and someone else and Nathan Fletcher back in the day and um, yeah seriously I just I sat in the car you know and just didn't say a word literally yeah, but kind of like I knew at the same time that um, I had the thing that just just be um, definitely not heard and, and and just not not really be seen as such, but just, you know, hey, if they're going to surf pipeline, I'm going to go out. If a wave comes at me, I'm going to go. If they tell me to catch a wave, I'm going to catch a wave. Yeah. You know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm going to do what do what's in front of me because I'm here to get the experience you know I'm not going to be like I'm not going to whinge or complain or you're not going to hear a word out of me you know and so I went to pipe with those guys and um, I paddled out they paddled straight out to their inside so I just paddled out with them to the inside this is you know back day one then and then a set came and I caught a set and then the guys are like whoa that kid that was in the car he caught a set (laughs) and And, uh, is this the footage that made it onto that film I'm not sure. Um, my my brother came over that time as well, and he stayed somewhere else further up the road. So we, um, I'd meet him at pipe as well. I'd tell him we we're going to pipe, and sometimes we had a video camera. Um, and I actually, if I'd meet him sometimes early morning to go surf pipe or something, because the best time to hit it would be before the sun comes up, because it gets when the sun comes over the mountains, around uh, right in front of pipe um, or the hills. Um, it's about nine o'clock, something like that. And so all the pros come out then because there's no point for them coming out when it's not front lit and sunny because you won't get, you wouldn't get good photos back then. So from six to nine a.m., this was a window of opportunity to go surf pipe. So we'd go down film super early. And some days I'd go and film him for an hour and a half and then he'd film me or the next day he'd film me. And um, yeah, so Chris was 16, I think. And yeah. What an amazing experience. Yeah, it was really good. I spent I spent two months there that season with these guys. Live there, at, yeah, eighteen. Like my first day in Hawaii, I surfed Waimea. Oh my god! And did you have some good go downs? Not really. I don't think I only caught three waves, something like that. I was pretty. It was more just. It was more like, hey, first day, swell's coming up. It's going to be fifteen to eighteen foot at Waimea. We're out there. Here's a nine eight old beak nose giant dirty wax surfboard from under the house. This is what you're riding. And I brought a gun. I brought an eight five that was. Um, about 18 inches wide this toothpick of a board and here they are giving me this um, 9.8 that's 21 inches wide and 3 and 3 quarter inches thick and I could barely lift it and they're like you're riding this you're not riding your board and it was you know it's pretty mind blowing so that was like my that was like the first day I went out there so at this point in time training like I know training is such a big part of your life it you probably would have been completely oblivious to it at this stage or you're completely yeah completely oblivious to it yeah yeah didn't know anything about it as in so for surf training yeah yeah didn't know anything about it at all it was i was just exploring it i was really i was i was super scared of big waves when i was a kid um probably from a few different experiences when i was little a boat a boat flipping and um whereabouts 
at Point Road night. We went fishing one time and it was a high tide and the boat ramp is at Point Road and it goes into the water and um, you get one foot waves yeah. or one, maybe even two foot waves kind of break up on the boat ramp. There's a bit of current and it's not nice. And so what um, Dad took me and my brother and my sister out. We were super young. I was probably like four or something like that. And we were, he put us in the boat and he started to push us out through this tiny little shore break. Not tiny little, it was big to us. And this other guy goes, hey, you jump in to my dad and I'll push you out. And my dad's like, sure. And the guy's like, yep. And so my dad hopped in. And so he was going to start the motor, you know. And so this guy pushes us and dad sort of starts the motor and the motor doesn't start. And the guy just drops the boat and just runs away. And my dad's like, you know, hey, what, you know, just, his guys just left us in the lurch. Yeah. And my dad's trying to start the motor and the boat drifted sideways and as my dad's trying to do that um, a wave came and hit us and it flipped the boat and so the three of us we all got thrown in the in the water as I remember and you know I didn't want to go fishing I didn't want to do stuff I was really scared of the water for a long time after that yeah and how old were you? I reckon I was really I reckon I was like five no I don't I don't know yeah somewhere in the four to let's say in the four to eight range I think younger than eight I think much younger than that I think it was more like four to six range so my brother must have been super young I don't know I th- that's what I remember. The ocean's scary at that age. It's scary yeah, anyway. and it affects you for a long time. Yeah. So I was always fascinated by this stuff. And when you're on the Gold Coast, whenever the surf got big there, it's really hard to get out. So if it's six to eight foot at Burley, it's nearly impossible to get out. You might, someone, a good adult surfer might take three goes to get out because there's no defined um, paddle out places. It's not reef breaks. It's all sand. So you have to punch out through the waves somehow to get there. So when you're a kid... And not really let up in the sets. Yeah, it doesn't let up and there's sweep and it's just, it's really hard. Yeah. And so that didn't help me. But when I came back to Victoria, I learned about reef breaks and I'm like, hey, there's a place that you can surf a 10 foot wave and you can paddle out with dry hair basically. And, and I was like, "Whoa!" And this is a, this is a different thing. It's actually more about hey, it's about more about the surfing and learning it. And um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that story. No, but. it was um, initially because you were scared of waves. Initially scared of big waves, and I sidetracked you when you when you said about the boat. Yeah, um, but you must have overcome that fear at some point. Yeah, and I think that was around it was when I moved back to Victoria, and I started surfing bells with the guys around here, and there was guys that were the guys that charged bells when bells was eight foot or eight to ten foot um who's who are some and, of your heroes when you were young like that sean I don't, know about, I don't know about heroes oh yeah so sean was the guy so sean brooks was the um i'm troy brooks's age sean's brother and i was friends with troy and in that little tight group that we had and um Sean was this bit of an enigma that you didn't really see much of. He didn't really talk to you. Um, he was just on a different program. He was, you know, three or four years older. And but I just there was these stories about him surfing these huge giant waves. And um, and then we were surfing bells. And at the time, like eight foot bells was massive to me. And it's pretty big. Coming from Queensland, that was a, in that first season was a big um, learning curve. But I, I saw the other friends doing it, um, and actually one thing, one thing that really helped me a lot was a friend, Mick Spatiri, said to me when I was um, just seventeen, eighteen, the first year I was down here, was 
we paddled out at Winky one day and it was six foot and it was busy and the waves were pumping and I paddled out and I remember I paddled past the peak at Uppers where there was guys sitting and I started to drift down the line a little bit and I was just taking it all in and um, it was to me it was pretty big and perfect and Mick Spateri paddled up and he always calls me Stick and he's like because I was skinny you know he's like hey, Stick what are you doing and I'm like oh you know just make some excuse oh I'm just checking it out you know and all this and he goes you're laughable, mate. Is you want to be a pro? You want to be the best surfer in the world? You got to be up there, and you got to be you got to be sitting twenty yards deeper than anyone else, and taking off on all the bomb waves. You're absolutely laughable if you're sitting over here in the channel. He goes, "What are you doing? Get over there and go and get one." And that, like, was one of those like life lessons in surf that that was a tra- turning point for me because that stuck in my head. And so every time after that, and I listened to him. I went over there and I got a wave, and then that was a turning point. It's like, oh, okay, this is a, it's like a pathway. Someone's giving me the directive of what I'm supposed to do. Mm. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, don't just sit here and watch. Go over there and be the guy, catch the deep, sit deep and catch a set wave. Yep. Just do it. Don't look, you know. And that, um, that stuck with me. And so for years after, from that point, that was in my head. And every time I got in that situation where I paddled out, that was where I'd go back to. And I'd hear that voice in my head. Get in the go, hey, you're laughable. What are you doing over your channel? Go over there. And, you know, that voice would be just in my, in my head. And I'd go over and, and, and surf deeper. And that helped me progress up, up, up really quickly in size of waves and in what I felt like I had to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? If someone else is doing it, well, well I've got to be doing it. I've got to be doing it better, deeper. Um, and then, then it kind of switched as I got a bit older because um, I... I guess Andy Irons was a big influence as well, and we used to always say. Um, did you meet him in your Hawaiian travels? I did next. Yeah, I did next door at um, that guy JD's house, and I think I went surfing with him a couple of times. But I was more just I was just being a fly on the wall because they had their you know they had their crew they were they were doing their thing you know they were on their they were on their path, and I certainly wasn't a part of it, but because of the guy next door and where I was and the crew that I was in with like they would be they would literally go hey get in the back of the truck you're coming we're going surfing it's Andy Corey all these guys and Braden Diaz and you can see there's a spot for you in the back of the truck you know in the, in the back of the pickup where the dog sits no worries I'll take that corner yeah yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Yep. but I saw those guys and, and so a thing became for me and, and my brother I, we always used to say it and it was what would Andy do so we would paddle out and even when Andy was alive when Andy was alive yeah yeah for yeah. sure because we'd be like what a hero do you know and yeah. I think probably a lot of people do it I'm, I'm probably not alone in this um, I don't know if you do it yourself but if you ever see you ever mind surf a wave a big wave and you think like what would Shane Dorian do or I don't know what do you have that voice do you see that and go what would oh look at that if someone was here they would do it do you do that um, no not so much I always just like, look at a wave and just think that I wish that I was on it or something oh, that's good um I don't I have never thought now maybe I will because no one's ever said oh imagine try and imagine someone else was on that I always just in my head just go imagine I was on that where would I be mm. would I be able to be in that position or would I be out further like mm. away from the impact part so we'd always go like look at that crazy wave over there that no one's surfing um and or that you know super deep over there or whatever and we'd always imagine and go well Oh, Andy Irons would paddle out and he'd be he'd be he'd be in the barrel there and um, you know he'd just go for it and that thing would go okay and then so when we were young we'd be like oh well 
if Andy would do it, we should try it, you know, and then we'd try and paddle over there and do something. And that would be our way of trying to push our limits and, and, and push the envelope of what we were doing. And so we always had this, this thing. And it wasn't until, um, I was getting pretty deep, but mm. <laughs> it wasn't until I got to about 30 um, that I had to, I changed it again. And it's this is just a, this is a, I guess it's a sports psychology thing or whatever. But um, I had to stop saying what would someone else do, and I had to start saying in my own head what would Jeff Rowley do. And I go, well, he would go over there, and he would sit a hundred yards deeper than anyone, and he would take off on that big crazy peak where you're mind surfing, and mind surf it, backdoor that thing, take a huge drop, backdoor it, get the biggest barrel ever, and come spat out in the channel. And so instead of saying, what would Shane Dorian do, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. Shane Dorian would do that. I go, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. What would Jeff Rowley do? Mm-hmm. And then I go, oh, hang on. That's me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well I'm, I'm him. Okay. Well, I have to go over there and do that now. And I would hold myself to that because, and that's what, that's what gets me to go over there and do something now is when I see something and I think you should be doing it, I hold myself accountable that okay if that's possible well then why are you sitting here do you know that's crazy because I've had a similar shift with acting have you where I used to imagine like oh, how would someone else do that thing yeah. how would someone else do that mm-hmm. but no it's, that's exactly the same how, how would John I, Teague do it how would I do it he would do this yeah and why don't I just go and do hang that? on so why aren't I doing it yeah okay I'm going to do it <laughs> <laughs> and you go yeah and you can go through this sometimes it takes me sometimes it takes me half an hour sometimes it might take me an hour in the water if I paddle out in this big surf um, I might be I'm not in gear you know and that's 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 what I love about Big Surf I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here but that's what I love about Big Surf now is is I'm a normal person I've got family um, kids commitments you know work job got to make money pay all the bills all that I'm the same as everyone else when a big swell comes I get the same butterflies as anyone else and the same things I haven't trained enough I'm not ready I'm not this all those little voices that sort have of come into your head but what I love is is the switch that's what I love the switch of of being that and then flicking that switch the process to 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 when you change to the other side where you are that person that's paddling over there and you are that person catching that wave and i love the switch you know i get just as scared of the thought of a hold down as anyone else it gives me or not scared but i get the butterflies from it etc you know because it does but like the switch is amazing i just can't you know i we had a bit of swell around here over the weekend and I was pretty tired on the Saturday Arvo and an eight set, eight foot set came through. And I remember just thinking at the end of the day, I'm so glad I got under that. And that's eight foot. Can you grab a chopper? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's there. Um, yeah, and that's eight foot. So I, I, I can't really fathom, and I know a couple of times in Margaret River I surfed a few waves that were bigger than that and all that. But the conditioning and the mindset, I just can't get my head... Eight, the different, like eight foot. I'm saying to myself, I'm so glad I got under that. And you're talking sixteen feet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Plus twenty five feet, and the sheer difference in volume. It, it's I'd have to imagine is only um, what's the word where everything exponentially. Yep. It's not just that again. It's like it's exponentially thicker. It's and that feeling of fear I have at eight. Uh, I don't know what happens in that next realm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Take you me can, away. Yeah, but 
you're completely right it's ex- exponentially different like the volumes of water that you see in a big wave um even like a 12 foot a heavy 12 foot wave like a proper real 12 12 to 15 foot wave that's when the volume um really kicks in and you start to see like swimming pools of water getting drawn up the face of this thing and getting thrown over in the lip it's not just small amounts of water it's it's pretty like mind expanding kind of thing um it, it definitely is but that feeling that you get is the same and doesn't change it's just it's the same as a beginner gets when they see a two foot wave it's the same as what you get when you see a i don't know what eight to ten foot wave um it's it's still there it's everything else that you do around it that um that manages it it's probably the same thing you might feel with acting of like you know acting in a blockbuster compared to acting you know well, in a same, little indie it's the same thing time, right yeah it's, it's all the same it's yeah. just a bigger scale and there's yeah. just more preparation how you, in your mind. how you do it in your mind how you deal with it and you have more um more things around you to help you through it as well so the, like the biggest thing and i can uh, the thing is it's the biggest thing i see is equipment for people equ- having the wrong equipment um and i did a really interesting test on myself yesterday where I rode a smaller board than I usually ride. I surfed some big waves yesterday. It wasn't huge, but it was 10 to 12 foot. Um, and I normally ride a big board. Um, I normally ride a 10.6. Um, and um, it's a it's a deep water sort of wave, a really thick, heavy, hard to paddle into wave. And I ride, usually ride a 10.6 for certain reasons. Um, but I decided to try my 9-footer. And my 9-footer is three board lengths down from 10.6. And what that means is you get a 10.6, then you can have the next size down is a 10-foot. So your board should go every six inches at that size. So 10-foot is the next size down, 9-foot 6, and then 9-foot. So I was actually three board sizes down, which is a massive mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried to ride that, and I felt like um, I've just felt like a, a mouse on a freeway. You know, I was sitting low in the water. I couldn't see like I normally can. Um, I couldn't paddle fast. When the sets came, all I was trying to do was get out of the way. And I had all these feelings that I haven't had for many years because I was on this smaller board and it felt like a toothpick out there. And I was like, well, this is what most other people must feel like when they're in this situation. And me being on the right equipment normally um, on the bigger board changes all that and instead of being i felt like i was the hunted that day and normally i feel like on this other board i'm the hunter out there and i'm looking for those big sets and i'm in the position to catch them and yesterday i had this feeling and i was like whoa this is crazy and i go this is what guys feel like when they um when they step it up but they don't have the right equipment and the right preparation so hold on what size board were you on nine six nine foot nine foot Mm. did you get a few yeah, caught a bunch of waves. Nice. Yeah. Um, so we were talking the other day, and you were telling me about the 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 breath holding. Mm-hmm. And this is, I found this really fascinating. And you're talking about it as if it's a, a, a map. Yeah. Or so when you're in the middle of a breath hold, you, there's certain responses that the body gives yeah. to let you know where you are on the timeline of till blackout. Correct. Can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah. So a breath hold is. The, the physical experiences that you have and, and that your body, um, what's the word for it? The, the, the Involuntary? Yeah, the involuntary processes that your body goes through during a breath hold are simply flags, if you like, along the timeline of your breath hold. 
from the start of your breath hold until blackout. There's things that you can do to stretch out that timeline, make it longer, and there's things that you can do to speed up that timeline to make it shorter to the blackout point. Okay, mm. panicking is the fastest way to get the blackout really quick. Mm. You'll burn all your oxygen, um, et cetera, et cetera, and you know it result in a really bad thing. Or you can just go further and open your mouth and breathe in water, and that's going to result in drowning. That's the, that's the worst thing, of course. And the opposite of the scale is being absolutely calm and relaxed, and that will extend that timeline because you're not burning any of your oxygen as long as possible. The things that happen along the way. Um, are what you do, um, what we do, what I do, um, breath um, hold training for to, to, number one, learn what those flags are, what those signs are that your body's doing, the physiological symptoms is what I meant. Um, recognize what they are, recognize where they occur on the timeline and therefore be comfortable knowing how much further you've got to go along this timeline. So, for example, if I can know that I can, let's say, comfortably hold my breath for three minutes, let's just say, right? Yep. Um, then along that timeline, I might have um, I might have involuntary spasms in my you know in my stomach because um, that's that's a sign that you'll get and um, and an urge to breathe at around a minute ten to a minute thirty. Okay. Yeah. So you've got this urge to breathe. And so my stomach will be start to spasm, like pumping and re- really uncomfortable. And my abs are kind of like twitching and flexing. fully t- fully flexing up yeah. and down, up and down. Like, if you know, if you, if you watched it, you would really see someone, they don't look well when it's happening. Mm. That just says to me that I'm at, um, I'm in a lot of pain right now. I don't actually need to breathe then. You think that, you, we think that that is your body telling you urgently need to breathe now no it's not it's your body saying yeah i don't have but it's your body um trying to find more oxygen within itself that's what's happening no shit yes yeah so it's like like a like almost like a shark you said trying to shine out of the water to help itself uh with its digestion your body's kicking shit around to find oxygen basically yep it is so what happens with your breathing and there's a um just to jump away from that a little bit, um, there's a thing called the mammalian dive reflex. And I think I mentioned this to you the other day, but what that is, is um, there's a reason why um, air breathing animals, sea creatures, whether they are mammals, can go under the water a long period of time, but come up and breathe air, such as seals and whales, okay? And they have a large um, spleen. And what that does is it holds the highly oxygenated blood and so when they hold their breath, they can go down for two or three minutes, their spleen will contract and they'll release highly oxygenated blood throughout their system and they stay underwater for whatever it is, 20, 30 minutes. Because of the Stuff spleen. like that, yep. Because they have a source of oxygenated blood in their body other than what's in their lungs. Does our spleen do that? Yes. Yes, and that's what free dive training is for and breath enhancement training is for. Um, Does the spleen do anything else? I don't really think so. I've got no idea. I, think it- I remember when we were kids, um, one of my mate's brothers jumped on him and split his spleen, and I remember it was a really bad thing. Yeah. Like, but I, I never could work out what the spleen did. I think your spleen and your appendix are two things that we like use the least. I think it's it's some so ev- it evolutionary it goes, it goes thing that we've to, got. We go back to the ocean. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, but you can train it, okay? So 
and the idea of this is is if you don't know anything about this you might be able to hold your breath and say well i can hold my breath for a minute right or a minute 30 and then it gets too painful and you and you'll breathe okay and that's you, so that's an ordinary person that doesn't have an understanding of this process they'll hold their breath for a minute or a minute 30 it'll get too painful they'll get the urge to breathe too much and they'll just they'll just let go and start it's breathing it's a shit feeling it's the yeah. worst feeling yeah and when you do this um, training um, and I do these free dive tables of CO2 tables and O2 tables they practice um, bringing on um, bringing on the feelings as, as quick as you can so um Getting used to it. Yeah, getting used to it. But back to the, the mammalian dive reflex is, is the whole point of it is I do breath training and any free diver and a lot of big wave surfers do the same thing now is you train to, um, to, to get your breath hold up really good. But what happens is once you get to a certain point, your spleen contracts and you'll release this highly oxygenated blood and you'll get, you'll go for, um, you'll get really comfortable and calm and you feel really good actually you feel almost euphoric and that's where people say this this little point where your gut starts to go and that's when my would go into panic mode yeah that's gonna wake up the spleen and the spleen's gonna do its job okay so i'll jump back on that timeline thing so i said i said three minutes and say you've got the spasms occurring at one minute so let's say at one minute 20 you've got these crazy spasms going on in there so you know what you tell i'm I'm sitting there just you've got to have this almost like out of body perspective where you're you go okay i can feel my stomach and chest is spasming okay this is good i'm at about you know i'm at about one third through my breath hold now that's all you gotta tell yourself. It's just a signpost. This is happening now. Now, what comes? Because no one else asks. Well, what comes after the spasms? It's not blackout. It's not blackout after the spasms. After the spasms, there's going to be calm. So I'll be trying to find the calm, and I'll, I'll get half a dozen spasms in my, in my, in my, you know, ab section, and then on the last one, it'll just sort of freeze, and stop moving, and then it goes to calm after that, and then if your spleen's contracted, you'll go into after that pain and discomfort all of a sudden everything's calm you don't feel anything you can't even feel your fingertips you don't even know if your hands are palm up or palm down if you're lying on your bed or something like that everything's really calm you can't feel anything anything more there's no more spasms and no more this you might start to smile a little bit everything's easy is this what they say drowning's peaceful yes this is what people do people say they have near drowning experiences they come back and they say, hey, it was actually was really comfortable when I saw a, you know, a light and it was really fuzzy and warm. It was really good. Well, actually, the chances are it was their spleen contracting, releasing this oxygenated blood, and they were actually, that's what it was. They were actually calm. That's the actual the scientific reason behind it. Okay? So that'll occur. Um, but then there's, and that might be, that'll take you through two minutes to two minutes 30 out of your three-minute hold. And then getting towards three minutes again, especially if you're on a clock, you'll know... Um, it depending on how many breath holds you've done, the time might just come up and you go, well, three minutes was easy and you feel really good because you're still, the oxygenated blood is still in your system. So you're still, you're not, you're not craving oxygen at that point because you've still got plenty in your system. And so you get to your three minutes and go, well, three minutes was actually easy. So what we do is, there's two types of tables you can do with free dive tables. There's CO2 tables mm-hmm. and they, they bring on the, the reason you have the chest spasms is that sorry the abdominal spasms is co2 build up in your lungs okay and the co2 build up causes the spasms carbon dioxide yep yeah and so co2 tables bring on those spasms in short breath holds okay so what you do with the co2 table um 
CO2 tables are about short breath holds with minimal rest between them, reducing rest. So, for example, I did some the other night where I, um, I did one minute 45 holds, a set of eight holds, with the first one had two minutes rest between the two holds. The rest declined by 15 seconds each time. So the last set was a the last hold of 145 was 15 seconds breathing after the other one yeah okay. so you finished a a 145 and you got two breaths and then you had to do another 145 so all of a sudden you're actually doing three and a half minutes of holding with 15 seconds of not holding in there mm-hmm Right, so this now is, you start and this is to free diving tech, um, techniques, or yeah, is what free divers use. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And so, I practice those. And the first one I did because um, you know I just I just sat down in my bed and and set my phone. I've got a little app on my phone to do this. Um, the first hold that I did was really difficult. It always is, and you're getting more chest spasms and all this stuff because your body hasn't really kicked into gear yet. Yeah, um, and you sort of. You'll battle your way through your, through your first one. And it's all affected by everything about how was my day? Am I stressed out? Are the kids relaxed? Is everything, you know, what's what's going on in your world at the time? Have I eaten? Do I have a full belly that's worse than an empty belly? There's all these other things that are going to make it easier or better. Um, and you just, you just learn that. But it doesn't matter because by hold number two or hold number three, your body's going to start to go, okay, I get the picture here. We're holding our breath. We're going to be deprived of oxygen. We need to we need to better manage this let's you know let's and so what happens is your blood actually gets during a big hold the first thing that happens is the blood from your fingertips and feet gets drawn back up into your um into your vital organs and so your body conserves the oxygen it's called and that's the difference between the fight or flight mode the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system is that um, if your body's in fight or flight you will send all of your if you're in fight or fight or flight mode you'll send all the oxygen out to your fingertips and feet so you can fight or run Mm -hmm. that's a natural um that's a natural thing the human body does there's a brain style yep it just does that and rest and relaxation is the opposite is when your um your body will bring all the oxygen blood and oxygen back from your fingertips and feet um, back up to your heart your vital organs and your brain to conserve it right and so when you're surfing big waves, you kind of want to be right in the middle because you need to be able to fire when you want to charge a wave, but you want to be um, but you want to be relaxed, especially when you wipe out. You've got to be able to switch it all off and be super relaxed and conserve all your energy. Yeah. So when you're doing these breath holds, yeah, it's pretty funny. When you when you're doing these breath holds and you're practicing it. Um, you, you literally start to feel the blood draining out of your fingertips and you and by the end of a series of breath holds your fingers will be a different color because there's less blood in them your body's pulling it back up and so by about the third hold um you'll be really calm you won't be moving much you won't be twitching you won't even move your head you, you're just doing everything because you're just like no no i've got to hold my breath in a minute i'm not going to move i don't want to waste a second i won't scratch an itch you know because that's gonna that takes too much energy to do it um and so then you start you to feel really good. Do you hold that all the way to the surface, or if you get a feeling that the surface is close, give it a little. You know what so, I mean. Sometimes, no. Sometimes now, if you get a bad one, I'll be down there 
thinking about something else. Like say I'm doing breath holds at home, right? Mm. One of the things I might do is think about a book I'm reading or a movie that I've watched mm. and just walk myself through it. Start at the start of the movie and, you know, this happened, that happened, they met this and all of a sudden the time goes beep, beep, you're done. And I was like, whoa, I didn't get halfway through the movie. I was going to do the, I was going to talk myself through the whole movie. Then you go down and you have a bad wipeout in the surf. So you go back to that movie again and you start, you know, you go to your happy place in your head. You start thinking about this movie, but you only get Got a through movie in the, particular that you like to go. Yeah, sometimes like a born or something like that. It's just, <laughs> it's just easy to go, but something I, you know, that yeah, I yeah, liked. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to go back to. Just, just go, hang break. on, what yeah. happened in the first born or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, so all right, while we're on wipeouts, I want to mm. go to. I know that you you pulled up one day and you just come back from somewhere warm to quite large surf, and you had the wrong wax. Oh yeah. Do you want to talk through that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, that was about two years ago, and um, what happened was I pulled up in the morning, and um, I got this. I got this surf spot super early, and it was big and pumping, and there was no one around. I don't know why there was no one around. It was bluebird skies, and first light. It was. It looked like it was about fifteen foot, and just perfect, like ridiculously perfect, glassy, barreling like you'd see a three foot perfect waving into or something but yeah. it was 15 foot and um i don't know where i'd been maybe i was in i'd been in hawaii and i hadn't used my board and it had tropical wax and for some reason i went to my car and i couldn't find anything i couldn't find any new wax and i was like i ran around ran around this town looking for a surf shop nothing was open there's no one anywhere i couldn't find any other people or anything and i was like oh i went back to my car and there was a block of tropical wax that i had there and it was just staring at me and I was like oh I know this is not right but you know I was like it just this wax was staring at me so um, I thought I, I felt it in my hand I was like uh, I tied a tiny little corner on the board I felt yeah, it felt really sticky and tacky this this might be alright so I waxed up went out paddled out there um, and basically got kind of like there's a little bit of a little bit of current maybe and it took me sort of nice and deep and two other guys paddled out actually by that stage they jumped off a different place to me and got out and the first big set came and it was just so perfect and um i went for i think it was maybe the second or third wave in the set paddled into it and this thing yeah it just was was barreling and as i, I it was perfect, but as I as I go over the ledge and this huge giant wave, so how, ten, how big you? I think it was about. I think it was bigger than fifteen foot. I think mm-hmm. it was fifteen eighteen foot. Mm-hmm. I was on my ten six, mm-hmm. and which is for anyone who doesn't really serve, how, how much, that's much bigger in the face. Yeah, it's kind of like feet. it's it's. I don't know. It's kind of like the power pole. It's power some, pole. somewhere around yeah. power pole size. Yeah. Some, something like that. Um, and yeah, so I jumped on my feet. And I start going down this wave, and it's a beautiful and blue and oil sleek, just buttery perfect. And then there's a big boil in the water, which a boil is an imperfection in the reef that causes like a big giant bubble in the water, this surging bubble. And the water doesn't go in the same direction as the rest of the wave. It goes in 360s, and whenever your surfboard hits it and your surfboard fins hit it, you don't know what's going to happen. It is unpredictable. You could stop dead. You could rotate sideways. Just strange things happen. Um this thing's right in front of me. I had no other thing to do other than go straight over the top of it. And what happens is like in slow motion is my board kind of just stopped. It was just like hit this tacky surface of the boil. And in slow motion, I just do the splits. My leg just flies, my front foot just flies forwards. I go down, my face hits the board. 
Oh my god! And my leg is like I'm doing the splits. My face hits the board, and then I stop doing the splits. Kind of like in slow motion, roll off the side of the board. I'm laying on the water, with my arm on the board, thinking, "Oh no, this is really, really, really bad." And so I'm laying on the bottom of the wave, on the face of the wave, and this wave slowly, slowly, slowly picks me back up and threw me over the falls. You get a breath in at this point. I got about two. It was so slow. I got so much time that you wouldn't believe it. I could have had a a cup of tea. You're right. I was at like the bottom. I was at the bottom. And this thing just slowly in slow motion pulled me up. I had like two breaths, I think. And I just went, I am in so much trouble here that I actually had the the peace of mind to go, you know what? I'm going to put my hand on my, I'm going to get my pull cord on my inflatable life vest I'm going to wrap it in my fingers around it now because there's a really good chance when this thing throws me over the falls, it's going to knock me out. And so I just want my arm to, to pull this thing because that's going to be the one thing that saves me. So I pull my hand on that and was just like, this is like a horror movie in slow motion. When I, and the wave picked me up, threw me over the falls, top to bottom, landed at a big impact at the bottom, hit me really hard. And then the wave blasted me as I thought it was going to out the front, which is the worst because it beach balls, you know. And it did that. It blasted me. And when it finally, when the wave finally landed on top of my body, that's when I just pulled the cord because I knew I was in big trouble. And as soon as that happened, my leg rope went ping, just boom, there goes my leg rope, you know, snapped and my board's gone away. And then you just have this, as you're getting flogged, you have this alone feeling. You're like, okay, I got myself into this half a mile out to sea my board's gone. I'm going to get the worst wipeout right now. And I'm on my own. You start thinking about that movie? Hey, start thinking about that movie. <laughs> that one, I think I just detached. I was more just like I'm alone. I was just watching myself. Yeah, I'm like, uh, I'm just like, you know what? Your body's getting flogged right now. This is, and it was just so it, when you're going up and down and such mm, wipeout, are you free falling? Did you hit the ground? Did you hit the bottom? Didn't hit the bottom. No, but you must have been like Bouncing. the altitude oh. of going up and down mm. must be extreme. Mm. Like been rolled up and down and through under the water yeah. yeah absolutely like you can go down you might go down 15 foot deep and then come back up, up and then and you think when you're coming up you're like oh this one's going to let me up now and then boom this next bit of turbulence hits you and sends you back down deeper again and then the next one takes you deeper again and another one and then you're like oh my god i'm falling into these like underwater eddy holes here it's yeah it's pretty scary and then you get the one that takes you down to where it goes your, your eyes are closed but you can still you can still see light through your eyelids and then you know this one's black and you're like, oh my god, I am deep, and this is black. Um, this is really not good. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so, so you obviously eventually came up. Yeah, I came up, got washed in by a whole set of waves. So did you get a breath before the next one on top of you? Yeah, got a got a breath or two before the next one. I think it washed me in far enough. Um, got a whole set on the head of probably eight waves. Got washed to the end of this lineup, and just in front of a cliff. Um, my board was about to get smashed on this cliff and it washed me into like the same spot and I literally swam you know 50 feet to my board grabbed my board right in front of the cliff um, and was was just taking stock of what just happened to me and it's basically like hang on I, uh, you know what's going on okay obviously I can't go back out I've got the wrong wax I'm seriously injured lucky to be alive um, I th- don't know what I'm doing. I think I need to go in at least, and you know, just just scattered basically. Yeah, just cl- uh, yeah. So I start. Um, I started paddling in, and on the way in, a jet ski 
guys had, had come out and they actually they saw what happened and they came over and were like hey you want to ride in and I was like yeah well thanks and I got on the back of the jet ski and then I, I said what you know I said, they said what happened and I said I didn't have any wax etc etc and they go oh here here's a block of wax you want a block of wax and I'm sitting on the jet ski going oh yeah thanks and then I go okay I've got wax now alright and I said you know what guys just drop me off so I just jumped back in the water and re-waxed up and paddled back out no leggy yeah, had it, it actually had pulled off my leg. Sorry. Oh, no Yeah, the way. Velcro pulled off. Yep, that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. The Velcro pulled off. Um, it's the first time it's ever happened to me. Has it happened again since? No. No. I didn't really hear of that, did you? Yeah, the leg actually didn't break. Yeah, ripped off. Um, and, oh, yeah, I turned around and paddled back out. It took me about another hour because the waves are so good. It took me about another hour to get over it. I was like psychologically wrecked. I was like, I was so scared you're, of every wave. Sitting in the channel and then did, yeah, did I started in the channel. <laughs> that one, uh, <laughs> I heard my own voice. That one, yeah. But yeah, I started off really slow and I was really hesitant and um, I was really nervous about my wax. Even if the good wax on, I was worried about it still. And I finally got a smaller one and I was all right. And I just sort of built house again, as you call it. Started with a smaller one, got a little bit bigger one, a little bit bigger one, a little bit bigger one, until I was back in the zone feeling really good. And in the then, same session? Yeah. Oh I ended up having God. a seven-hour session. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I had another wipeout later on in that surf, which was probably equally as bad. But it was that day was really big, really perfect, one of the best days I've ever seen. And it was it was the day to leave it all out there, not the day to hold anything back, kind of thing. Yeah. So, so since then, you've been and you I don't know you got a cloud break a bit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so now we're on the big wave <laughs> stuff. Yeah. You've surfed Jaws. Yep. And you surf. Is that the biggest wave? What's. I've surfed bigger waves uh, as. No, no, no. Sorry. Let's take that back. Yeah. <laughs> I've surfed huge waves here at home yeah. in Victoria. Uh-huh. And massive waves are equal to what I've surfed in Jaws and what I've seen in Jaws. However, two years ago at Jaws in January 2016, I saw waves I've never seen before at Jaws. Giant Jaws. And that was the day that. Um, Aaron Gold caught the biggest wave ever paddled into. You were out and, that day? Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah. I paddled out with, um, basically with Aaron. And so I went to Hawaii for that swell um, after having not seen a wave over three foot tall for four months in summer in Australia. I flew into Hawaii for that swell, just cold turkey. And um, I, was get, I got changed and ready with Aaron in the car park. And we went down to go to paddle out together. He went off the rocks first, and he got out ten minutes before me. And I paddled out. And the first wave I saw was him paddling into the biggest wave ever ridden. And that did that thing. That was that rewrote rewired my brain again. You know that that wave was. I was right in front of it as he took off staring up at it and I knew it was going to be pretty big out there at Jaws it was supposed to be a huge perfect swell that's what I went for how big were they calling it? we are on 30 foot and so with the 30 foot swell like that what's the period? That, oh goodness I can't remember exactly um, that was a 
a special storm system. It had it wasn't one big low pressure system. It was one giant system that had three low pressure systems, three heads rotating within itself. Oh it was a triple headed low, yeah, which made it so powerful. And <laughs> Aaron was so. telling me beforehand, he goes, "These are the ones that make the biggest waves," and we knew when it was coming. Can't remember exactly what the buoys were reading. Probably twenty second period, twenty second period, and somewhere around how many meters somewhere around I think it was a, I think it was a really big one for Jaws I think it was 20 seconds and 6 or 7 or something metres yeah and that's what happens with Jaws is 6 or 7 metres as well at 20 second period that means 6 or 7 metres is about 20 foot of open ocean swell height then when that comes in and starts to feel the reefs you double that to 40 foot of 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 swell height and then realistically you can when it comes in turns into a wave you can nearly double that again do you know what I mean so it's like you, you can use like a you can go like the wave height will be four times the, the, the swell height kind of thing you know so it's, it, it can be you know so it's, it's the possibilities are, are endless out there and um, I paddled out and saw yeah Aaron the first thing I do paddle into this wave the most perfect it was perfect blue sunny the biggest wave anyone has ever seen and it was honestly, we even talk here, right? And if you know the Bird Rock Cliffs, it was as high as Bird Rock Cliffs. That's what it looked like. And I was laying on my stomach down there just to the side of this thing. That's what it looked like. I'm not joking. I came home and I was like, it was like that. That's what it was like. And he he flew down that thing and he was going so fast. And he said the wave had, um, he, he thought he was at the bottom three times because he thought he was at the bottom and then it sucked more water and he realized he was only one third of the way down and it went again and it went again and it went again and he, by the time he got to the bottom the wave had already ran past him because his board was you right. know cavitating and this sort of stuff he couldn't handle the speed because no one ever caught a wave like that before well, and what size board were you riding he, and, he, and he? he was on 10 foot board he's a really small guy though mm. he's um, you know like 60 some kilos I was on a 10.6 and that board of mine was a toothpick and that so that day changed things for me because I saw those waves I couldn't get near one of those waves I felt like anyone else feels on a 10 foot day when they're riding a too small surfboard that you just can't get near them and it just takes away all your confidence um, and it makes you feel like a mouse on a freeway mm-hmm. and that's how I felt that day on this board couldn't catch a wave um, and I watched other guys catch waves and their boards, they were smaller guys than me, but their boards paddled better as well. Um, and they were on thicker boards and things than me. So that, yeah, I learned a lot that day. And But a lot of guys didn't catch a wave that day. A lot of the top guys in the world were trying. There was so many waves you could have had them. There was perfect 25, 30-foot sets consistently going through the lineup. Perfect barreling, gigantic waves. And... You know, a few guys performed and did it incredibly well. Ian Walsh and Dorian did did amazing, got the rise of their life, you know, um, and a bunch of other guys did too. And then a lot of guys were just, you know, just didn't have the just didn't have the right so day. So it, it's coming clearer and clearer. But any time to me, it's over six to eight feet. It's about equipment up to that six to eight feet range. You can be okay to undergun it, I reckon. Yeah, you know, it doesn't it's, you can ride a yeah. toy. Yep. But over that, yep. maybe for someone like yourself, you probably could get away with a toy in bigger waves. But it becomes apparent from just listening to you that the more more firepower you have, 
Yeah, and the biggest mistake that people make, this is the number one thing. You can take one thing away from anything I said today if you're interested in surfing bigger waves. The number one thing is is most people say, I ride a six foot two surfboard for small waves, right? Then they say, I'm gonna get a six foot six surfboard is gonna be my big board for six foot surf. And then they try and scale up their small wave board to ride a big wave. Okay? They think about the the width and the thickness of their shortboard and they just add a tiny bit more width and a tiny bit more thickness and a lot more length and they think that is going to be a big wave surfboard. Okay? The thing to take away from this is it is chalk and cheese. It is not the same thing. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Okay? A big wave surfboard is a completely different thing to a small wave surfboard. It has no relationship at all to whatever you choose to ride in small waves. Okay? If, if an average person can go into a surf shop and pick up a six foot two surfboard that's say 19 inches wide and two and a three eighths thick, something like that, the same equivalent big wave surfboard for a wave of 15 foot is a 10 foot six by 21 by three and three quarters thick. That's it. That's your intro to big wave surfing board, that there, if you want 15 foot. What people try and do is they say, I'm going to go out in, I don't want to- you take that same one then to, and be like completely just- be great in 10 to 12 foot which one the 10 the 10 what you just described is yeah yeah take yep. that 15 wave foot board yeah put it and then serve it in 10 foot and just be like having a picnic yes exactly and then you're going to say so you get this big wave surfboard and you go out in 10 to 12 foot and you test it out and you have a great time because you can catch waves easy you can paddle really fast there's all these other guys on tiny boards that can't catch a wave and they're they're the ones looking like a mouse on a freeway and you're the one that's out there cruising, catching waves. You'll catch a dozen waves. And the guy's going to say, yeah, but I can't turn it. Uh, this other board I've got is going to turn really good. Well, guess what? You're not turning if you're not catching waves. Mm. So you ride a big surfboard. You catch waves. You get your experience up. If you say, hang on, I really like this. But now I've got some experience. My 10.6 is too big. I'm going to come down to 10 foot now. So you chop it down by six inches. And you go a little bit narrower and you go a little bit thinner. You'd be like, okay, I'm on 20 and three quarters and three and five eighths, not three and three quarters. You bring it down a little bit and you try a 10 footer and then you, you still, you really enjoy that. You go from there. That's what I'm saying is you go from, you've got your normal shoreboard, then you've got to jump, you do quantum leap to your big wave board. Mm. And that's what happens. That's what Hawaii is like. All the shops stock 10 six surfboards. Everyone just walks in. You can just buy one off the shelf. That's just stock board. And the trick with it is, I mean, yeah, you can be, if you're a bigger guy than normal or you're an average size guy, um, we could pick up the same board and go out on the same board together. It's not like in small ways where you need a different board. We could pick up the same 10-6 from a shop, just a stock board. You know, if you're a bigger guy, a, a really big guy, you can add a little bit more length, a little bit more width, a little bit more thickness, whatever. But that is your, that's your basic board size. Um, once you get your experience, once you decide whether you like catching and surfing big waves, then you can choose what to do. Otherwise, if you don't like it, then just, yeah, sell the board and get out. But the mm. worst thing is, is when you see someone getting a seven foot six surfboard and going, well, I surf, you know, my home break at six to eight foot and I ride, I can ride a six six. So I'm going to get a seven six and I'm going to ride 12 to 15 foot waves. And they're still like a mouse on a freeway you know what I mean yeah. and they won't get near a wave they're putting themselves in danger it's they're, a good analogy though really because it's, it's about what you feel like yeah it's so tiny yep so um, alright let's change gears mm-hmm. now you're you've had a life change 
with your business and you're doing it's it's a protein powder yep yeah and yep. this been this has been spawned by your ever growing thirst i suppose for self development is am i on track here in terms of well, you always i feel like you're one of these people that are always bettering themselves and learning and growing trying to trying yeah. to yeah you know yeah and you know I, I know we haven't even touched on it but you're a black belt in jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. and um accomplished big wave surfer and, and freak and <laughs> so is is this why you went into this area because it's like this is a, a, a self-betterment sort of a thing you know like protein is a really well it Protein wasn't the original choice. So Mirabuka is our business, Mirabuka Protein. Mm-hmm. Um, we make protein powders and super greens products. They're all natural, healthy, no added sugar, They're really clean ingredients. Yeah. Um, I got into that business. It just it just happened through an evolutionary process. So um, about 10 years ago, I was training for the World Championships of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I was on a, you know, I was... I was um, trying to to drop a little bit of weight to you know, make a weight category. I was training super hard, um, and I was watching everything that I put in my body, every little calorie and all the ingredients on everything. Trying to eat super healthy um, and get super fit. And I was introduced, you know, I was introduced to protein powders probably a few years before that by people. Didn't have much idea about. It. I just thought protein builds muscle, etc. You know. And it's one of the, you know, one of the big myths that they sell to a lot of young people, you know. And um, so I was buying protein powder. And what I learned was when I started to read the label on things that most of them were just full of um, sugar or filler ingredients. Mm. And when I started looking for products that didn't have that in it, I couldn't find anything at the time. Um, and the journey that I learned was, was I didn't even know where protein powder came from at the time. And I learned that um, the protein powder is whey protein. Whey comes from milk. Um, the milk comes from the dairies, which is I've got had friends that were dairy farmers down in Western Victoria. Um, and I realized that the milk that makes the protein come from where we live. And I was like, well, this is a crazy little full circle thing, you know, this education that I've just had. And mo- I don't think most people know that or knew that at the time. So I started sourcing um, the raw protein myself from a from a dairy co-op way. down here the way mm-hmm. yep and making my own product for myself because it just didn't have anything else in it it's like i don't want to spend all this money on buying sugar powders when i'm trying to eat vegetables and not eat any sugar um so i started making it for myself then just that sort of usual story you start making for a couple of other people um and then i always wanted to have my own business mm-hmm. and then i just decided at that point to make a jump and and go hey i'm giving it selling this to a few people let's try and see if we can get in a shop you know back then and let's try and you know get see if we can get a website set up and see if we can sell it online knowing nothing about how to do either of those two things um yeah basically started from there and just kept it going ever since then so it was always about being healthy it was about a product that i needed for myself and i couldn't find um, but i also learned about the the process of where it came from you know and just wanted to help try and educate other people about that and to to give people you know clean ingredients and just good healthy clean food so where so um as a just give yourself a plug where do you find where do we find that if you go to our website mirabookaprotein.com yeah yeah you can order online or you can find out some of the shops that we sell through nice and um okay what does the future hold 
for for the business? No, for just for me. The goals, targets, training. Um, have you that's you think, have you reached where you want to be, or you've got a thirst to keep going? Like you, I'm not. I'm always goal driven, mm-hmm. so I've got a few goals. Um, as you mentioned before, I am a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I've had this conversation a little bit lately where that was my goal forever. When you don't have a black belt, your goal is to get black belt, and you can't see anything else. Um, you don't think there is anything after that, and it's only once you get it that you realize that you've got to the top of one hill, and the rest you can now see the rest of the mountain range in front of you. The hills are higher. So my goal with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, and same as with my surfing, is that now I've got two kids, my little son and daughter, is that when they're 18, I want to be training jiu-jitsu with them. And I want to be surfing big waves with them when they're 18. I want to go surf Cloud Break and I want to go surf Jaws. I'd love to paddle out with my kids and do that in another 18 or 20 years. So that's my goal. My goal is longevity. Love and it. That's, that's different to before where my goal might have been on this day to catch the biggest wave or to try and do this thing in a short-term perspective. Everything now is about that long-term perspective. And I don't want to injure myself or do something stupid that's going to affect my long-term goal or whether it's just my health, let my health go to a point where I can't, you know, put on weight or something, mm-hmm. where I can't do that. So that's, I'm yeah. not going to start smoking ciggies. No, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got to keep myself fit. And that's, that's it long term. I want to be doing it with my kids in 20 years. And someone actually, uh, Pete Devine, my jiu-jitsu instructor, I was talking to him about it. I said this about my son and he said something that really blew me away. His son is 21 now, Max. And he said, well, my goal is to surf, oh, sorry, is to do jiu-jitsu with Max's kids, my grandkids. And I went, whoa, that's like super long-term. I never even thought of that, you know what I mean? So that's like 40 years away or well, something. Well, that's because he, he's already at the top of that mountain looking over the next one. Yes. That you're not at yet. Yep. And so I do look up to some of the people that are, um, you know, who do I who do I look to some of the guys that are still doing these things now at a, at a much you know much older age bracket than myself who's doing stuff in Dorian. their 50s and stuff like that Dorian he's, he's not 50 yet I don't think he's late 40s he's good um, yeah there's probably there's a lot of people out there that are doing things but just to keep going with have longevity. you got on um, do you get on with the uh, have you Wim Hof haven't haven't got on. With, haven't got onto his thing. I've listened to a little bit of his sort of stuff. He's uh, out I, there. He's awesome. I kind of love him, but it's out there. Yeah, I, I I have my own thing that works enough for me. Yeah. And if I know where I'm at on my own thing, so if I'm at like if I'm at peak of what I'm doing, then I'm as good as I feel like I need to be. Whereas I can tell, I go right now. I'm like, no, I'm at about thirty percent of my peak. Mm-hmm. I know that right now. I'm at about thirty percent. Mm-hmm. So. I don't need someone else's thing at the moment. I just have to do my own thing to get that back to peak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm sure Wim Hof's amazing. He's got some great stuff there. But would it be really... too much for you to turn up that seventy? Though, would it? Yeah, it's just I can take. Like no, nah, do that. Yeah. No, no. You're not um, fighting that other side battle where you're always no. maintaining. No, I don't have to at all. Yeah, yeah. I've got. I mean, I'm busy with family. You don't have the main thing is you're juggling time with family and work and trying to fit it all in. Make sure you've got a, you know, balanced lifestyle. If I'm going for a surf, like I got a lot of surfs in the last couple of days, I've got to make sure that I'm getting enough family time in and then enough work time in as well to mm. keep everything in harmony. 
keep it going because otherwise if you're surfing too much then the family and the business falls down and if you're doing too much work and then your fitness and surfing and your family time falls down and too much family time you don't make any money so you got to find that balance it's the triangle or the circle yep uh we're at an hour and a half wow jeff anything you want to get off that you haven't said no man it's all pretty good i've enjoyed having a chat dude thanks for having me on no worries appreciate it Okay, there you have it. Uh, there's my chat with Jeff Rowley. Thank you so much for listening, whoever you are, wherever you are. I hope you enjoyed that because um, I certainly enjoyed chatting to Jeff. Uh, he's truly an inspiration um, and someone that I look up to. And, and you know, I just I love it when I get to have a conversation with someone who makes me want to grow and expand and keep pushing my own self in my own ways to um, to peg down a few goals and a few ambitions of my own. Um, so thanks, Jeff, and thanks to anybody else who's still listening. Okay, till next time. Adios. Adios.